Blog Talk Radio. Network. 13-year-old Charles Miller thinks he's living the life in Florida with a summer vacation ahead of him and then floating in on a homemade raft as a guy calling himself Captain Kidd. The good captain enlists Charles and his friends on a mission to rescue the Patch Ferry. Flying into space, the captain leads the gang through strange new worlds and into the attic of the world. The latest work from Joseph Mazarak is available on our fellow imprint Milford House Books, and he joins us today. Joseph, welcome. Hey, good to be here. Well, we've got to begin at the beginning. Uh, this is a fascinating and fast-paced adventure, and you cram an awful lot into these pages. Uh, what inspired this right at the start? Where did this all begin for you? Okay. Um, well, it actually began on a big road trip, probably, I don't know, maybe five years ago now. Um, my family and I, we went on this epic cross-country journey. I think all in all, it was like 7,000 miles. And uh, along the way, we had stopped at my brother-in-law's house. He lives in Washington State. And we happened to be at his house on the 4th of July. So uh, he had a yacht at the time, and we thought it would be a great way to spend the day to go out to the marina, hang out on his boat, and watch the fireworks go off. So... uh, we we went out to his boat and um, we're you know having food and such as that and every once in a while me and my kids would would uh, go out onto the dock and maybe walk along the edge of the water and just walk around and enjoy the day and as we were doing this on one of the boats this kid popped up and he waved to us <laughs> I said like hey guy and he was decked out all in his like boating gear and whatnot and uh, when we were walking away my my boys were pretty small I think they were. They were probably maybe eight, seven, eight years old at the time, and we were walking away after we saw this kid, and I said, hey, you know who that was? And they were like, no. <laughs> and I said, that's Captain Kidd, man. He sailed to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. <laughs> so I started making up these stories about him. He fought the shark to piss, and he rescued the mermaids and whatnot. And um, then, uh, you know, we just went about our business climbing around on the rocks by the water. And, and uh, later on in the day, we were walking around again, and this kid just popped out of his boat, and he started waving to us, hello. And I was like, hey. And as we were walking away, I said, hey, that was Captain Kidd again. And he just started, he fought the Leviathan, and he found, you know, buried treasure and stuff. And um, so the idea of this kid kind of, you know, stuck in my head. And when I got back home, I live in Florida. Uh, when I got back home, um, I was thinking about this Captain Kidd character, and I kind of, you know, reimagined him a little bit in my head, and um, I, I was trying to figure out what I would write next at the time, and I was starting, I had started two stories already, 
just like the beginning chapter. And I thought, you know, I should write a little something about this Captain Kidd character. So I wrote a little bit of that. And then three weeks in a row, I brought it into my writer's group. And I said, you know, you guys got to help me figure out which one of these stories I should start writing. And so I brought the stories to the writer's group three weeks in a row. And at the end, it's like, all right, which one? And <laughs> each story got a vote. So they were all tied for first place. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, after some discussion, they settled on, and he was like, okay, we should write, I should write the Captain Kidd story. So, okay. um, I was, I was actually a little bit bummed about that, though, because I was concerned that this, that's what I was calling it, the Captain Kidd story at the time. I thought, uh, the mm-hmm. Captain Kidd story, uh, maybe it's a little too kiddish. I don't know if it could maintain my interest long enough. Right. And because, you know, I feel like if you're writing a story, the person writing it needs to be the biggest fan of that story because they have to yes. spend so much time with it. So um, I was I was probably like laying in bed thinking about it one day. And uh, I was like, all right, what can I do to spice this story up? And so um, in my, in my vision of Captain Kitty wore a captain's cap and he had a vest with a bunch of merit badges sewn all over it. And my idea was that um, where Captain Kidd was from, uh, whenever Kidd did something that was really brave or very interesting or learned an important new skill or acted nobly, then this person called the Patch Fairy would come and visit them at night and leave a merit badge under their pillow. But the Patch Fairy got missing and Captain Kidd was looking for her. And so that was that was like the basic premise of the story, but mm-hmm. um, I was like, well, you know, what can I do to make it more interesting for myself? I thought, well, I need to ground it in our reality a little bit more. So I made the main character a kid from our world. His name, he's uh, 13 years old. His name is Charles Miller, and he's kind of the leader of his little group of friends. But then Captain Kidd shows up, and uh, he explains mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, he's from this other world. And it's like, okay, you know, (laughs) one of the things that made it more interesting to me was the idea of the reality decks. And Captain Kidd explains it to Charles like this. He gets two decks of uh, playing cards, and one of the decks is red, and the other deck is blue. And he shuffles them together so just the edges of the card are interlaced just a little bit. He explains that reality is like this. It's like a deck of cards, and there's layers between the, you know, there's layers to it, and they touch. And if you know where to look and you know what you're looking for, you can actually skip between the layers. And he thinks that mm. Patchray has been taken to this layer one up from where Charles lives into this place called the Attic of the World. So, yeah. Okay, once I got into that, I'm like, all right, I think I'm getting somewhere. This can maintain my enthusiasm. I'm interested to see what happens next. Um, right. Yeah. Well, let me add, if you, let me step in with a quick question here. You said you talked about basing it a bit in reality. You said the story specifically in the year 1990. Was there a pivotal reason or reasons for that? Um. I don't think I did this consciously at the time, but I think that at the at, in the year 1990, I would have been about the same age as Charles at the time. 
you know, give okay. or take a, a few years. And so um, <clears throat> what Charles Charles's environment and what he's interested in was basically what I was interested in at the time. But the cool thing about that is a lot of this stuff has become cool again. Like I've got kids um, mm-hmm. who are into Transformers just like I was. And, you know, Star Wars has maintained its popularity all this time through all these years, yep. you know. And so I think that's that's cool for, you know, adult readers who are like, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but also um, with the, young, the younger readers, this stuff is still cool today. So I tried to make as many of the references to the time period relevant to today. And um, mm-hmm. one of the, one of the ones I brought into it was, uh, I was me, me and my brother at the time it, back then, uh, our favorite two baseball players were Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire. And you uh, have the bash brothers. So, um, you know, today there's their notoriety has changed quite a bit. They're, you know, could be even called infamous in some circles because of, yes, you know, the doping scandals and whatnot. But at the time, so so people still know these guys today, even who, who are not huge baseball fans. But at the time, yeah. these guys were super super cool. So, I I remember I remember it quite well. They were on top of the baseball world, and the Oakland A's had finally risen out of years of mediocrity to become yeah. a hot team again. And that was also the trend at the time. It was funny because Bob Uecker, uh the longtime broadcaster who had been a player, he made this interesting comment during an interview one time, right as they were starting to take off. He said, you know what it is? The thing that's changed about this game is that all these guys are hitting the gym now and lifting. And he says, we didn't used to do that. And he says, that's why mm-hmm. you're going to see more home runs. Of course, he had no idea what else they might have been using. And I don't think... I think everybody kind of had an inkling as to, well, something's wrong with this picture. But the enthusiasm yeah. at that time for the A's, but also for baseball, because it had become exciting again. Right. And and much later on, this was, you know, back around I don't know, 1999 or so, uh, maybe 1989, 90. I remember it. I, I remember it quite well, yeah. Um, well, after graduating high school, I worked at the Atlanta Braves uh, field for a while, and uh-huh. this was at a time when uh, Sammy Sosa and Jose Cons- or, and uh, Mark McGuire were going for the record. You know, they're going for the home run yep. record, and so uh, I remember I, I was working at the Braves stadium when Mark McGuire, you know, the Cardinals came and Mark McGuire hit a grand slam against our boys. You know, the, against the Braves. Uh-huh. But it was such an exciting time in baseball that, you know, he got a standing ovation even in Atlanta, even though he had hit a grand slam against us. But anyway, that's that's getting off the subject, I guess. Well, I guess what it does, though, is it ties into, as you were saying, you brought up Transformers, you brought up Star Wars, and I remember their popularity then. And some things don't lose their popularity. Some things just don't. That Star Wars just has never died. Star Trek has never died. Right. And that's like a nice connection to – it's a nice connection between generations when you think about it. Yeah, it is. Let me ask you this now about Charles. Go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say that you know, it's been a a number of years since I wrote the first draft of the story, and now my kids are actually Mm -hmm. 
the same age as Charles and his friends, so it's kind of it's kind of neat. Well, you you slipped into a thirteen year old persona without an awful lot of trouble. Uh, how how do you write for an audience like that, or how do you handle the characters? Uh, do you have like a the thing I've always done is I sort of get in in touch with my characters by talking to them, by interviewing them, and by sort of. Mm. I admit I transform myself into the characters. Uh, do you do anything like that? Uh, that's a great question. Um, well, one thing with the young people is I have four kids, and so I'm around young people a lot, actually. Yep. So that definitely helps. Um, but but also. Uh, Maybe this is a roundabout way of answering your question, but you know, I'll, I'll arrive at an answer, I'm sure. Uh, one of the real formative books for me when um, when I first began to appreciate novels, because I didn't, you know, when I was young, actually. Um, one of the first books to really I connected with was Ender's Game, which was written about, you know, this kid in you know battle school up in space. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with this story. Mm-hmm. But he was written as a pretty smart kid, obviously. He was actually a genius, you know, but he was still a kid. And um, like Harry Potter is written in this way where, you know, the kids are, hey, these are smart kids. And I'm around kids enough to know that you know, just because they're young doesn't mean that they don't have complex thoughts and feelings and whatnot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and um, I'm, I'm probably <laughs> I've been accused of being a kid at heart still, so I don't think you know that it, it seemed pretty natural for me to still relate to childhood. I guess that's good though, and it's sort of. My my own writing is the same way. It's sort of like I'm reconnecting with my own youth, and I'm yeah. especially reconnecting with the parts of it that I don't remember. It's sort of like I'm being reminded in sometimes very oblique ways of my adolescence and my teenage years. Right. Yeah, that's understandable. That, that helps. I hope that helps. I really do. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us a little more. Now, Charles... Charles comes across as a pretty typical kid. Um, and how much of you is him? And, and what, what is Charles's view on life pre-Captain Kid when, when suddenly everything changes? <laughs> okay. Um, I think I wouldn't say that Charles was stuck in a rut, but I think he, he was in a, a good place. He was in the zone, you might say, which is kind of the opposite mm-hmm. of being stuck in a rut. So he was in the zone, but you could think of it as a rut because he was so he was unprepared to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he had this idea of life where he was, I think I mentioned earlier, he was the, the you know, sort of leader of his little group of friends. Everybody sort of deferred to him a little bit, so that was a good spot for mm-hmm. him. And he has, you know, good relationship with his parents. And, you know, I always got the impression they did relatively well in school. And so, um, like, pre-Captain Kidd, he saw his life as being good. And um, also, he's a good person. He does feel some amount of responsibility for his friends. And he, he, um, like, if this was your kid... 
you would be glad to call Charles your son. Um, definitely a good That's person. Cool. And yes, it seems like he has a pretty decent relationship. Um, the his younger brother Tommy. There seems to be a little sibling rivalry, but it doesn't seem it's not a stereotypical one. It's not the you know it's not like all head to head, and it's not all oh we're best friends or anything. He's pretty interesting too. Oh, I'm glad you feel that way because he is a minor character, but uh, there's this sort of idea in the story. And this is a very minor plot element, but um, Charles and his friends are. It's like they're called to go, um, mm-hmm. and his brother isn't. And there's this there's this moment in the story that I like a lot personally when Charles has you know decided that he's actually doing this thing and it's about time to leave, and uh, he goes to his brother and his brother's playing with his toys in his bedroom, and he's like you know he reaches out to his little brother to you know mm-hmm. see if he wants to go too and. It, and his little brother basically just completely ignores him. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, an interesting one. No, and I like the other. The, the other kids all had really good. They they had the development there. Um, William, Ozzy, and Don were all very. You know, you had them drawn, and I'm like, how much did you draw on your kid, your own children, or other or other kids to to make them up? I'm I'm always interested in how other because the side characters or the the, the back characters have so there's a reason for them being there. There always is. Hmm. Um, well, obviously, I think you actually asked me this. So, you know, I've got the answer was I put a lot of myself in Charles in Charles's character. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, Charles is very much like like me, and I wasn't really the leader of my little neighborhood <laughs> group of friends, but uh, if I was, I probably would have responded a lot like Charles. But uh, Ozzy really reminds me of this um, of a friend I had in junior high, who was you know really goofy, kind of loud. Um, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Don is Don's actually one of my favorite characters in the story. Um, yeah. Role, her role actually took me by surprise um, when I was writing the story. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, they all rem- like. Fortunately, I know a lot of kids uh, now, and mm-hmm. you know, I've I've moved around a lot growing up. I went to a bunch of different schools because my dad was in the army, and we moved every co- few years. So there's definitely little little bits of these people I've known throughout the years who rubbed off on these characters. Mm -hmm. I definitely want to ask about uh, your early life in a bit. Um, You've given us some really interesting bits like the captain's, the captain's raft reminds me of something out of Jules Verne. And um, I was really intrigued by how you set that up. And of course we've told us about captain kid and what he rolled in on. Some of the other characters also just really are, are interesting, and they just sort of pop up like when they're inside, and you know they're in, they're, they're starting to make the adventure in. Uh, the marshal just shows up, and when I saw him, my immediate sound in my ears, uh, I just thought of Sam Elliott and Lonesome Do- on Dove. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. What, uh... 
when I hear I hear the story, I hear the story in my head, almost like an audio book. And I'm a very visual person, and so uh, I do sketches, and um, yeah, I, I want to be able to like like when it came to the raft, I want to actually mm-hmm. know what this raft looks like and where the yep. the mast goes into the like how does it connect to the the wooden floor and mm-hmm. uh, such as that. So, you know, if I can really picture it in my head, and if I, even better if I can draw it, then I know that mm-hmm. I can describe it where you're like, well, this doesn't make sense as far as, like, proportions and whatnot. Um, and I would I would draw characters with their whatever kit they were carrying. Like, so, so-and-so mm-hmm. character has a backpack, they have a baseball bat, they wear a hat. You know, if I would just do a little sketch, it wouldn't have to be in detail or anything. But it would mm-hmm. help me, like, lock in my mind what they have with them. And that was that was really important. The more stuff people had or people left stuff behind or, you know, now so-and-so has a sword or something like that. So I've got to remember as they're moving around these buildings and whatnot, you know, like they obtained the sword three chapters ago. And now as they move around, I have to remember, okay, this person has a sword on them, so have mm-hmm. to, or they've changed clothes or something like that. Um, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's uh, the detail is always a part of it, and that's what a, a question was, you sketching out, doing the research, that's all part of it, and... Um, I, that's one of the things I do is with all of my characters, I write sketches even before I begin writing the story, and I'll I'll have like an entire list of all my characters and their distinguishing characteristics. How do they dress? You know, what do they look like? Number one, and then how do they dress? What's their attitude like? What sets them apart from other people? And uh, you say you do it in your head. Do you write it out as well, or 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 map it out? Like I I have a couple of friends who map it out on their walls. <laughs> uh I uh, I've become better at this over time. Like when I started I was totally winging it. And mm-hmm. uh the more I've written I I track a lot of stuff like within the word document. Uh maybe the first time a character is mentioned, I'll put in a comment. I and mean, this is probably not the best way to do this. I think something like Scrivener, I believe it's called. I've never used it, but from what I understand, it's really great for this sort of thing, and maybe eventually I'll get into that. But uh, you know, my simple method was just to you know highlight the first mention of a character, uh, you know, put a comment, and then start you know building their profile in there. Or sometimes at the end of the story, I would create a note section, and I would create you know headers for each of my characters, where I could easily find in the navigation pane. Um, you know that made it pretty simple in the word mm-hmm. within the word document, and then um, you know the other thing was you know actually sketching uh, characters, and cool. I, I would pretty much do that when I saw it was necessary. Like if a person's not going to be in there very much, or you know their what they have with them is not really going to change. You know m- maybe I don't need it, but as characters become more complex in the story and their movements and um and particularly in action scenes mm-hmm. uh, I find it useful to have something very organized about what a person 
has with them, or else I, I lose track of the details. Mm-hmm. Understood. Well, there's another thing too. Is as as Charles and the gang are following the captain into these worlds, we see all these interesting characters and these different races. And I don't want to give it all away, but people are going to meet some really uh, unique creatures and and such. And I was wondering, it's like, did you have any kind of a map idea for this universe? Because they run into creatures called the the Kaibis, and then they meet people like Queen Ayana, and it's like they're all fascinating, and it's like these worlds all lock together like Legos in a really neat way. (laughs) I love to hear you talk about my story, by the way. (laughs) I appreciate your enthusiasm about it. Um. Well, I, pretty much my process would be I'd have this nugget of an idea at the beginning, and we kind of talked mm-hmm. about that already. Yep. And then I would have an idea of how I want the story to end. And so I would be working back and forth until the until the piece is met, essentially. And I mm-hmm. ideally, I would like to be able to do this in my head with the essentials of the story mm-hmm. because um, anyway I, I personally have a notion that you should be able to hold the basics of the story in your head yes um, and then uh, and then some places I would really get bogged down like I said, my my writing, how I go about it has changed over the years a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, so before what would happen was I would get bogged down in the story. I'm like, all right, this is boring to me or mm-hmm. I can't figure out where I'm going. And so then I would basically be forced <laughs> to to outline something. <laughs> and uh, I would just start asking myself questions of like, why is he doing this? Or <laughs> where is she coming from again? Or, you know, why would he do that? Or something like that. And so I would just, you know, I'd get a notepad and I'd just start asking myself questions and answering the questions and scribbling stuff out and like a restarting. And and yep. when I could answer all my questions, I'm like, all right, now I have it. Now this makes sense and I can proceed. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, nowadays I do plot way more than I used to, but I still want to be open to the possibility that some character is going to come out of nowhere and really surprise me because – I mean that's really magic when that happens, oh, yeah. and uh, it, yeah, it definitely does. Um, well, I'll tell you what. Into the attic of the world, you left us hanging with something at the end, and it's like, what is your vision right now for this? Um, because there's definitely a sequel that kind of has to come. And right. how far do you think you can take uh, Charles, the captain, and everyone? They, it's almost certainly going to be a trilogy. Okay. So, um, the the sequels, you know, it's a work in progress right now. It's called Into the Red Realm, and uh-huh. uh, so that's going to take them up to a certain point, and then the next one. I have a you know title in my head, but there's no need to say it now. But uh, okay. that's going to 
there's <laughs> there's going to be this big climactic ending that everything's you know everything is going to be a cohesive arc throughout the uh throughout the trilogy um so I, I haven't I didn't feel obligated to plot out exactly these the three books in total, but I I know where I want to get to in book one, I know where I want to get to in book two and and book three, and then you know who knows if I if I feel up to it if there's a if an audience for it you know I could see me writing some little standalone um, things that are you know related but you know their own stories. Exactly. But we'll see, you know, life's full of surprises. That's it. That's exactly it. Well, Joseph, we now need to get into uh, your background. Now, you said your father was in the Army, and you got to travel uh, quite a lot. Tell us about, you know, what what was that like? What was it like to be an Army brat and to, you know, live in different parts of the world? Well, um, when when I was growing up, I think the military's actually gotten better at this over the years about trying to keep people mm-hmm. in a place longer. But when I was growing up, Dad was in the army, and we moved. I think at average of every year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was born in Germany, then you know, moved to you know, went to different places in the South: Georgia, North Carolina, Alabama. I've lived in Alaska for four years. Alaska was the place I lived at the longest growing up. And, um, you know, Texas, what, what Florida, is, you know, just... Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to I lived in uh, Anchorage, Alaska, and a little town okay. called Eagle River. So even when, even when I lived in Alaska, we moved even then. It wasn't all that far away, but it was before cell phones and the Internet. So yeah. um, several of my moves were like this, even though we just moved to the other side of town, basically. We may as well move to the other side of the world. Because I couldn't get my, you know, my friends didn't want to write me letters. I was really into writing them letters. And, uh, you know, back then, if if you moved too far to, like, walk over to the person's house to ride your bicycle, you may as well have moved, you know, across the country. Wow. Um, I mean, it was a little bit better than that. You could potentially go see them every once in a while. But, you know, the the concept is there. And um, I always hated hated moving and I would mm-hmm. get depressed and uh, I'm sure I was difficult on my parents at times around moving time yeah. but um, but I was always glad I went to the place that I went to you know I, I don't want to leave that place either when it was time to go I was, I was always glad like retrospectively and then uh, and then my own career as an adult um I'm an I'm an unexploded ordnance technician now, and uh, anyway, we would do government contracts, and I moved around with that even more than I did growing up. And my wife, God bless her, was very understanding of all that, and um, we went on many adventures together. And uh, you know, when my when my boys were real little, we would all travel together, but after a while, you know, like, okay, something's got to change, this, this doesn't really work, but I, I was able to empathize with, with them a lot, because I remember what it was like, it really stunk moving all the, but we've lived in uh, Orange Park for, uh, it's a suburb of Jacksonville, we lived there for maybe 14 years or so now, and uh, so, 
you know, my kids will have a connection to a town more than I ever had. I, I, I never felt like I had a hometown. Yeah, and what's interesting, too, is you have a couple of uh, areas in your background that really interest me. Um, I, You also are dyslexic. That was <laughs> yeah yeah, I, and I I had a I had a close friend who was I had two in fact uh, one in college and one in high school and we didn't know and it was I felt horrible after I'd found out what they were dealing with because they you know they always seemed a little off or they seemed a bit mm-hmm. you know they were having trouble with things and we just and being kids you don't know and then you suddenly realized oh my god this is what they're dealing with how difficult right. was that. You know, well, how did you deal with that? How did you work with it? Basically, I just I didn't deal with it. I I hated reading when I was young because I wasn't I wasn't good at it at all. Um, right. And I I hated the idea of a teacher calling on me from out of the class to stand up at her or even sit at my desk and read something. That was like absolutely traumatizing for me, which was completely counterproductive to my relationship with reading. So um, that just added a new layer of I hate reading on top of it. But the the funny thing was what what, uh, changed my relationship with books was actually audio books. Yep. When I uh, when I was working on uh, for a while, I was a comic book artist. That was the only thing I wanted to do when I when I was growing up. I was an artist, I wanted to draw comics, mm-hmm. and for a while I did that. But um, so I would spend countless hours at a drawing desk or at a computer, you know, using Photoshop and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And while I would sit there, um, I started listening to audio books, and it. I should actually back up a little bit because what turned me on to audiobooks was it was actually a teacher. Um, my senior year of high school, I had, I think it was a social studies teacher, and it was toward the end of the year, and I guess he decided that we were going to cross the line at our current pace without doing much, and he he decided it was a good idea for you know maybe twice a week or so for us to just chill out in class. I had his class at the end of the day. Um, just everybody be quiet, and we're going to listen to an audio book. And the mm-hmm. book he, he picked for us was The Vampire Lestat. <laughs> and and uh, it's like, I don't know how appropriate that was for, for a teacher to introduce his students to the vampire Lestat, but I was fascinated. I had never you know, experienced a book like this before. I thought it was great. <laughs> so, uh, um, that's my kind of introduced teacher. To a, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, all right, here's some Anne Rice. I was, I was like aware of uh, Interview with the Vampire because the, the movie had come out with Tom Cruise yep. and Brad Pitt. <clears throat> so anyway, we listened to that, and I thought, oh, man, this, this was that was really interesting. So, um, like, years later, when I was working on a comic book, I would, like, listen to the radio or maybe have a TV playing in the background. I thought, you know what I should do? I like that book, you know. I should I should go get, you know, get some audio books. And so that's what I started doing. And so I would listen to all these, you know, di- different genres, fiction, nonfiction, fantasy, you know, adventure, and spy stories, just just anything, 
And so I'd listen oh, to all funny. these stories, listen to all these stories, and um, I just really began to appreciate this narrative voice, the way the dialogue mm-hmm. was handled, and just the complexity and the scope of stories yes. that could be told in a novel. And like I, like I said, at the time I was working on comic books, and I still love uh, comic book art, especially to this day. I've always really had a soft spot for illustrative artwork. But mm-hmm. the scope of story you can tell in a comic book is very, very limited because comic books only yes. like 25 pages, and most of that's pictures. <laughs> so um, I'd done some writing on the comic book back then, but that was again, it was way different because it was so short and it was in uh it was in like a script format yep. so a uh, long story short um I stopped working on comic books, and uh I didn't know what I, I didn't know what I was gonna do at that point, but you know, after a few months, I started getting this creative itch again, and I thought, you know what. I'm going to write a novel. How hard could it be? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I sat down. I had these. Uh, I had a collection of sketchbooks, and there was this character. Uh, two characters in the sketchbooks. Uh, one was named Jody, and the other was named Jamba. And Jody was this giant, and uh, Jamba was his uh, dog-like friend. And uh, I. When I was when I was like a teenager, I'd taken a deep dive mentally into these characters, and uh, I thought, but that story was way way too big to tell in a comic book format. So mm-hmm. I thought, well, hey, this is perfect time for me to work on this, and uh, you know, thank God I didn't know how hard it would be, and I was way overconfident about my writing abilities for a long long time. Yep. But, uh yep. But, you know, so it was a process. I joined a writer's group, and um, a lot of it was just, you know, practice and mm-hmm. reading books about writing, listen to uh, podcasts. The, uh, um, what's it called? Cam Weiland has a great podcast. Uh, yep. I'm blanking on the name of it. Um, I know who you're talking about. It's I, I don't know the name either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, sorry, no, that's, that's really great. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Now, you were saying that uh, there were these different. Uh, you know, there's the the thing, um, the value of listening to other listening to other authors, listening to other shows. Um, oh, in recent years, a lot of people have been a little picky about it, but um, my sister gave me a copy of Stephen King's On Writing. And uh-huh. a lot of people consider that kind of the Bible of how-to. Um, some people kind of trash it in recent years, and I think it's mostly because they don't have anything else to say. But while not everything is applicable to every writer, there was certainly some – the bones of, of it is there, uh, at least for me. And, I mean, I had been writing for a number of years, and then she, Susan gave me this, and I was like – and I looked it back over, and I was like, oh, okay. So I always tell people, you know, it's it's it doesn't mean you have to do everything he says. It's it's just some ideas and some interests and you also find out what happened to him early in his life and then you realize where he gets some of these creeped out stories. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, that was a that was a good book. Uh one of the things he described in that and I'm paraphrasing and I'm unprepared, so I may butcher this a little mm-hmm. bit. But he described 
his uh, process is like going down into a basement, like mentally going down into a basement, Mm -hmm. and he would discover like furniture with tarps draped over it or something like that. And, uh, you know, he would just dig around in there and start uncovering things, and, you know, before he knew it, there would be a story down there, and that that imagery really related to me and and my process because Mm -hmm. I would have like a nugget of a story, but I wouldn't know what was going to happen. And then I would start digging around it, like excavating around almost like a a paleontologist or something like that, scraping away the loose Mm -hmm. sand. And it's like, you know, something's taking shape. And, you know, certainly your, your imagination, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like your imagination works separately from your conscious effort, but you have to like team up with your imagination through this process yes. to, you know, cause your, your imagination can come up well personally, like my imagination could come up with all these things, but it was very uh, disorganized or disconjointed or um, maybe not even, you know, not even good. Or sometimes my imagination would dig up things that were not even healthy for me to think about. So there's all, there's this refining process that's through your, your will and um, to shape these things into a product that is good. Yeah. So. Well, I'll tell you, Go. you, you talk about the, it's like, for me, writing has often allowed me to go to the dark places or the places that I didn't so much forget or that I was trying, I wanted to ignore. But it's, again, that thing where it's like it, all, it allows you sometimes to touch subjects from different angles. And for me, a lot of my writing has been exceptional therapy, and it's a lot cheaper, too. So I, I've, <laughs> yeah. I've always had that to thank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. And but no, it's it, it's interesting. Your the processes we're talking about here, and uh, you know, for me, it's like I will map out a lot of what I'm going to do in terms of like. But the thing is, I always tell people, it's like I have character sketches. I have a whole file for that, and then I'll have a timeline. But I know I'm not going to adhere to it. Chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, it's not going to go that way. It never does. Yeah, and that's fine. And the thing that I always tell people is, uh, they always ask me, well, how long does it take you to write uh, the first draft? And I said, well, it usually takes about a month to write the draft based on the way that I write, but I always tell them, I don't just start writing. I'm not one of those people that can just sit down and, and just start banging it out. I will take a few months to just let a story work in my mind and make sure that, okay, does this make sense? Do these characters keep showing back up and knocking on the door of my brain? And right. have I not done this before? I, you know, it's like I don't want to write the same story over again with different characters. Right. So, and I have said to people, it takes about three months. A couple of my projects I didn't write for two years because it just kept working, and I just kept thinking, okay. That's good, but what's what else? What else? I need more here. And then you just start making notes, and then all of a sudden you're looking at it and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, this might work. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun when that happens. And the process is, you know, for for me, I think most, for most creative people, 
the process can be you know frustrating at times if nothing's happening but it's also really fun and very rewarding when you see things start to stitch together mm-hmm um, I want to ask about some of your earlier work as well, because you were talking about comics and illustration and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You have, um, I think you have a book here called *The Rise of David*. Tell me, there's like a couple of those. Tell me about these. Okay, so, so, uh, um, let's see where to start. Okay, Sorry, in a, in a, you know, in a way, there's actually some parallels with uh, Into the Attic of the World um, because mm-hmm. the main character is about the same age. His name is was Andy, and the idea behind those was uh, um, this father, Andy's father, starts telling him stories from the Bible, and he's going to tell him the story of David, which was yeah, mm-hmm. I'm a person of faith, and one of the stories that most resonated and captured my attention early was the story of David. And for you listeners, I recommend you search out the story of David if you're not familiar with it. I guarantee you all kinds of very surprising things happen. And it's, you know, like, <laughs> it's it's at one point, you know, like a Braveheart moment where you're like, yes, and at other times you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that's in the story. Um, yep, yep. So there's lots of ups and downs. But anyway... <laughs> I, at the time, I, there were some religious-themed comic books, and I was a comic book enthusiast, and I, did, I, I just wasn't impressed with the offerings that were out at the time. And I mm-hmm. thought, you know, partly out of cockiness, you know, I thought I could do better. Um, but I think that is uh, like uh, that's almost like a necessary ingredient to get started sometimes when you don't. You know, if you don't think you can do it, then why would you ever start, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, my intention was to uh, uh, Andy's Andy's father tells him the story of David, and then you get to see the story through Andy's imagination. And at the time, uh, his favorite character when when this whole starts um, when the when this st- starts his his favorite character is hero is this. Um, comic book character in his world so this is a fictional character to him but it's this guy named the justice avenger <laughs> the justice avenger is a superhero and uh maybe you know he's not like superman like he's he's not good in in every way or this idyllic person he's kind of right. like he's a cool fun hero but he's not necessarily the best hero and so my intention was to as the as the story progressed, um, Andy starts, you know, transferring his hero status to David. So, um, unfortunately, uh, the book ended after I, I published two graphic novels, and uh, you know, I had originally intended to uh, do four to complete the series, and it, it didn't happen just for financial reasons. It was a real bummer, actually. Uh, it was probably the most depressed I've ever been in my life, actually. When you say and, the financial, um, was it the was it the upfront cost of uh, or the production cost, that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, it's it's way more expensive to print um, yep. print comic books because it's all color and the binding is different. It's just it's totally different than printing uh, like a, a novel. So, um, 
you keep the cost down by printing lots of copies. And if you print lots right. and lots of copies, you can actually do it really cheaply. It's kind of amazing how inexpensive you can print comic books if you print a bunch of them. So um, mm-hmm. I had, you know, there were there were comic books in the genre that places like Lifeway would carry. Um, mm-hmm. They were really successful. They sold a lot of books. So I thought, <laughs> I knew the potential was there uh, to sell a lot of books, but I made mistakes and, you know, lightning doesn't always strike. And um, right. we just couldn't afford to go on. It, it, but even now I look back at those books, I'm proud of I'm proud of them. For what they are, they're they're really good. My kids like them. Pretty pretty much everybody liked them. It's just um, um, they didn't take off the way they needed to. I, I really thought I really thought it was going to happen at one time because we had been picked up by it was called STL Faith Works, and they distribute to all the Christian stores at the time. And at the time, I thought this is great because there were way more uh, religious themed bookstores than there were even comic book stores. So right. um so we got picked up by them and uh we something like that. It was a lot. But mm-hmm. we just for whatever reason we just can generate enough sales so yeah. well it's an experience though in itself, obviously you know it, it, it's one of those things you chalk up to the experience of you. And the other thing too, is you went forth and you did it. So that's even better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, uh-huh. what an important lesson I learned with that, and which relates to now is that I, I bit off more than I could chew with that story. I started a story that I failed to finish and I felt really bad about that. And so uh, with into the attic of the world, there's, two more books to to get out there but those books will get out there lord willing and you know um that is definitely an accomplishable goal so right well yeah, it would be unacceptable we, not to finish that <laughs> so. i no no i i totally understand and yes there would be some readers going hey you can't leave us yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you mentioned well, Stephen King earlier. Well, Stephen King was in the uh, in the midst of his Dark Tower saga, which uh, I think he started writing the Dark Tower in uh, like seventy four or something like that, seventy five. Um, it yeah. was one of his first things ever published. Um, the first Dark Tower book came out mm-hmm. in a periodical magazine called. Um, Science Fiction and Fantasy Magazine, I believe is what it was called. And then uh, later on, they got all the stories and they compiled them into the first Dark Tower book. But, you know, fast forward decades and he was still working on it. And uh, he was hit by, he he would go out for a walk or, you know, I think he'd go out for jogs uh, from his home in Maryland. And one day he got hit by, I believe it was a drunk driver in a van and he almost died. And one of the things that it's like one of the things they kept thinking about as his recuperation was, I could have died and I wouldn't have completed the this series that he'd been working on all this time. <laughs> so, well, um, 
I I've been there, and uh, I can I can I can say that I had a like experience, and mm. this was before I even started writing seriously, and it was like there's so much to do, and I probably shouldn't be here. So it's like wow. after several years of getting my own life back together and carrying on, all of a sudden I start thinking again about all these ideas that I had, and of course I scrapped all of them, and then finally I just started again in 2007 i finally got serious about it so it was like okay i guess it was meant meant to start now <laughs> yeah well let's see and the time that we have left now you are working on the sequel what is uh what's next for you is that the project do you have like a like a goal to have it have the second one written that kind of thing yeah so um i I had written about two thirds of the sequel, and I don't want to get into you know the reasons why too much, but I decided you know what I actually need to do. It made more sense to me strategically. I needed to pause, hit the pause button on that, and I had a couple um, other books that I, I had written that you know were already written. They just weren't out yet. And so one of one of them was that story about the giant that we briefly mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, it it actually won a uh, Royal Palm Literary Award at some point, but cool. it just wasn't quite ready to go out into the world. I thought, you know, I need to tie a ribbon around this thing, and so <laughs> I took a break to do that. It took a surprisingly long time to finish it, but uh, it's almost done now. It's at the beta readers now. And there was another uh, novella called, um, called The King, the Witch, and the Dragon. And uh, it, it was a novella, it was a shorter, but I've got to finish this thing and get it out. And then I can focus all my efforts on Into the Red Realm. So uh, that's the plan. Um, the, the King, the Witch, and the Dragon, and the story about the giant, it's probably going to be called the Tournament of Moons. Um, I'm probably going to self-publish those. I'm not 100% sure, but I probably am. That's going to give me opportunities to um, do new marketing ideas and stuff I didn't really, you know, have a handle on uh, before. Right. And then, you know, we can carry on with uh, the books um, in the into the Attic of the World series. Okay. Well, my last question, what advice do you have or would give for first-time authors or even those that might be struggling at this point, what would you tell them? Well, I'm really glad I've listened to your other shows. So I've had time to – I've heard this question. I knew this was coming, so I've had time to think about it. Um, So my advice to uh, other people who are inspired to write is it would fall into two categories. This is really, really important. Because there's people who like to write, and they just enjoy writing. It's a hobby, and they just enjoy it for the sake of the activity itself. And they don't necessarily have to have you know much of an audience. They just like writing. Some people like watching TV. It's just you know a hobby. And for those people, the advice is totally different from somebody who wants to get published, and you know they're. In, uh, so the other cat- category would be people who are not really going to be satisfied unless all of this work pays off with um, a readership of a certain size. So 
um, if you if you so reader so listeners if you're in the camp of you just love writing I would actually encourage a lot of people just to take some of the burden off their shoulders of having to achieve some goal according to some other person that they don't necessarily feel um, like if you're not on social media or whatever, you don't feel like you necessarily have to have a, a giant audience or something like that. I would say for a lot of these people, just enjoy writing for what it is. I mean, it's being a creative person just makes the world a better place. It just does. You being a creative person, me being a creative person, just makes. I love being around creative people. So there's there's that group. And for the other group, um, my main advice would be to just um, don't treat writing. Okay, think of you could think of writing like uh, a martial art. You don't just show up to the dojo and walk out that same day with your black belt. It takes a long, long time um, to become a, a good writer. And one of the reasons why I um, pursued being published by a traditional publisher was because I was such a poor judge of my own progress throughout the years. And I so often mm-hmm. thought I was better than I really was. And, you know, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, but, you know, so study the craft and uh, stick with it and you, and find people who give you honest feedback and such as that. But just just be in it for the long haul. That's, a, that's a what I would say to them. All right. Well, Joseph Mazarak, thank you so much for being on today. This has been a, a great discussion. I really appreciate it, and best of luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. Our guest today, Joseph Mazarak, author of Into the Attic of the World on Milford House Press. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of the Brown Posey releases Searching for Roy Buchanan, A Moment in the Sun, and Live from the Cafe. The sequel for Searching, Call It Love, is coming out in 2021. Thank you for being with us. This is the BookSpeak Network. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.